Thank you for that kind introduction. And of course, a great thank you to my former professor, uh, Dr. O'Donnell. When I started here, he was teaching me apologetics. We were reading the Apologia Pro Vita Sua um, and some history, including a little bit of Irish history, of course. Um, and Kathy, who I knew very, I, I babysat their children while I was a student here, so that's how I really got to know Tim and Kathy. I won't tell any more stories, but anyway. That got you yeah, that, yeah, that guy. <laughs> and so I, then I entered the Dominicans, though, right after I graduated here at, at Christendom. So it's lovely. I haven't been back here for over 30 years, so it has been a real, when Brenda was talking about just those few buildings, I said it looks like a real campus now. And I thought, gosh, the students are so spoiled. They've got paved sidewalks. <laughs> but anyway, but it is, a, it is a real joy. It is an honor to be here can truly say that. And it's been lovely to get to meet so many of you. I don't think I've met everyone, but so many of you yesterday and today. So it's, for me, this has been a grace and a gift. So this evening, I'm going to say a few things. And I would like to start by thanking Dr. O'Donnell. Um, Professor, where are, you? where are you, Mike? I haven't seen you. Where'd Mike go? Oh, he stepped out. Okay. All right. Got it. All right. Professor Brown and Professor Whitmore. Um, actually, they've done a great lead-in to what I'm going to speak on. And we didn't plan this formally together. But for me, they've laid a lot of groundwork. And so hopefully you'll be hearing some things. I'll make a few explicit references to what they've said. But I think you'll make a lot of connections yourself as I speak this evening on conscience. And as I say, my focus, as was presented, also tying in the gifts, wisdom and counsel, as we speak of this culture in crisis. Now, also oddly enough, last night, you know, Dr. O'Donnell said how not to, to, to begin a talk. And he started with Chesterton. Well, I'm doing the same thing. So I'm still imitating my mentor here a little bit. <laughs> a short passage from Chesterton, but a different one. Over a century ago, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote that when a religious scheme is shattered, he was speaking of the Reformation and what it did to the church. He said, it is not merely the vices that are let loose. He said the virtues are also let loose. And this will refer a little bit to what Professor Whitmore was saying, so there'll be some connections on this. So this is kind of a transition from our afternoon discussion to what I'm going to speak on this, this evening. He said, the virtues are let loose and they wander more wildly and they do more terrible damage. The modern world, he concluded, is full of old Christian virtues gone mad. I love it, I love that line. He said, because they've been isolated from each other, which again, Professor Whitmore laid out the, the introduction for my talk. And he said, they're wandering alone. Today, these words seem prophetic. The term virtue is not as common, as we heard this afternoon. And its vestiges, though, still appear in the cries for justice, freedom, and the virtues mentioned earlier, the sincerity, authenticity, tolerance. We still see something there. Now, arguments about virtue and freedom, which we heard from Professor Brown, there he is. They are connected to the discussion of conscience, where a similar madness reigns. In fact, a contemporary of Chesterton a German positivist, Friedrich Jodl, spoke that he said that in the entire field of ethics, morals, there's probably no other concept that has been so abused as conscience. A recent work, a historical work by Matthew Levering on the abuse of conscience basically just confirms this. Now, in response to this madness, both as to virtues, vices, conscience, there's been a resurgence of theologians who have had recourse to Thomas Aquinas's rich, deep teaching on virtue. There have also been those who have returned anew to his principles of conscience. These are necessary. I do it myself. 
But I will argue that we must also include mention of his teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Purely speculative knowledge, as many of the students here, you know, they're, they're gaining all of this knowledge of the virtues and gifts, knowledge of moral distinctions and categories. This is important, but is insufficient for our dialogue with our contemporaries today. It can lead to, the, to an era that Pope Francis spoke of in Evangelii Gaudium. We speak truth, but those who listen to us go away with something alien to the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. An example, morals and conscience. I speak of virtue, conscience, my listeners here, virtue signaling, dogmatism, legalism, guilt. But that's not what I was saying. The church has always been called to present truth in charity, but today more than ever, it requires creative fidelity. A creativity rooted in a simple but profound teaching that appears in the catechism of the Catholic Church. The catechism speaks of formation of conscience. But it says in that formation we are assisted by, first, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But it also mentions the advice of others and we're guided by the authoritative teaching of the church. So formation of conscience requires a docility which comes through these gifts, and I'm going to speak of this docility on two levels, two aspects. First person, me. Second person, to whom I am speaking. Speaker, listener. So to support this argument, I'm going to be reviewing a few essential elements of Thomas's teaching on conscience and its formation. And then I would like to address the necessity of two of the gifts. Now, Father asked me, well, why those two? Um, we could talk about all of the gifts as to the conscience, but I'm going to focus on counsel because it corresponds to the, to the virtue of prudence and wisdom, which corresponds to charity. Now, conscience is a complex reality. And this has led to serious distortions throughout history. I could just refer to the modern and postmodern theories. Um, just a reference to like Cartesian minimalism where conscience is just my consciousness or a vague moral awareness and there are many other errors. But the problem is that because conscience is so complex, many theories only take one aspect of it. And the result is that we end up reducing conscience to, to a thin caricature of its true self, of the richness of what conscience is. Even in the Middle Ages, this term conscience was problematic in a way. It was complex. Thomas Aquinas notes four different uses of that term, four different definitions. I'm going to only refer to three, but all of them signifies something of an application of knowledge to something, conscientia, with knowledge. So they all have something of that. The first is conscience as a power. I have a conscience. And this is what we are going to speak of when we speak of forming a conscience. But Thomas also says the notion of conscience, the primary notion of conscience is the act. My conscience does something. It judges, it discerns. And then there's a third notion of conscience. It's a principle for this judgment. And that is sometimes, it's a habit we refer to. Now, and again, he did all the preparation, so we heard a little bit about a habit. Now this habit is often referred to, sometimes they use conscience to refer to this habit, but more formally and with Aquinas, and even back to the fathers, we call it syndaresis. I'll come back to that and explain, but I'm going to keep with that term syndaresis. So I want to start, though, with conscience as an act, a judgment. So the proper sense of conscience, a judgment. We apply knowledge to my act. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to determine, is this good or bad? And in that determination, my conscience, Thomas says, bears witness to insights, moves me, binds, accuses, excuses, get off the hook, torments or rebukes. Let's take a simple example. Different Dominican sister, 
A Dominican sister meets a young Italian man that I'm going to call Massimo. Now, Massimo reveals to sister that he's just been to confession and the priest has refused him absolution because he's living with his boyfriend. Massimo also tells sister that until that moment, he was unaware that cohabitation was sinful. Okay, we can look at the priest and Massimo. Both of them made judgments of conscience. They applied a general law, marital act restricted to marriage, to Massimo's particular act of living with his girlfriend. The priest's conscience bore witness to and incited him, moved him to correct Massimo. Massimo, hearing this information, his conscience witnessed to what he was doing, bound him, accused him, and also tormented him, because that's why he talked to sister. <laughs> he, this is what often happens. They go to the priest for confession, and then they'll go to the sisters for all the help afterwards. <laughs> that's kind of common. All right, I'm going to leave Massimo aside. We're going to come back to him later, though. Now, since conscience is application of knowledge, though, I'm applying some knowledge to my act, we have to look at what are the sources of this knowledge. Now, it's my conscience. So many people today consider it to be purely subjective. It's mine, it judges. We've heard these arguments again earlier today. It is the supreme tribunal. If my, my conscience says this is okay, it is okay. It is a, an infallible decision and you can't question it. And it's isolated from any higher truths. John Paul II outrightly, outrightly rejected this position in very touchy splendor. He also condemned any related notions, errors, of conscience as license, freedom to do whatever I wish, a voluntaristic right to self-will. We had that discussion again of my will. Also a creative conscience that can creatively kind of resolve any problem that I wish it to in my own little way. Or a conclusion, for an example, of another theologian, James Keenan, who said, at times we are obliged not to follow the church because we are absolutely not free to violate our conscience. Error, okay. These errors underscore the fact that at the heart of these questions of sources of knowledge are questions of authority. Where's that authority coming from? Well, what does traditional teaching say on conscience? There is an objective element and a subjective element. Yes, my conscience is a tribunal, but there's also an objective element referring to natural law and authority of the church. But traditionally, the church says those objective elements and those subjective elements meet without negating or destroying either one. So explanation of these two dimensions, though, this objective and uh, subjective element, lead us to the second notion of conscience as this habit, which, as I already noted, is some will, some will refer to it as conscience, but more properly we're going to speak of syndaresis. Well, what is that? Well, St. Jerome called it this spark of conscience. It's kind of the beginning. Conscience is the full power, the full judgment, but we've got this spark, so we need to talk about this spark. We find the scriptural origins of this spark in St. Paul. You may remember in Romans, this law that was written in the heart of the Gentiles who did not have the law. Newman spoke of it as the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Benedict XVI identifies the same reality as anamnesis. We also find traces of this syndaresis, this spark in Gaudium et Spes 16, which spoke of the conscience that summons man to love good and avoid evil. To obey this is the very dignity of man. And this conscience, this syndaresis is at the secret core the sanctuary where I am alone with God. Now, the point is, I've just given you a few different definitions, but many use these very definitions and distinctions to promote subjective autonomy. It's still all about me. But careful reading actually tells us that, okay, there is something subjective about me and conscience, but it's rooted in an objective dimension that is universal. The law written in our hearts. Subjective knowledge alone cannot logically be the cause of conscience's binding nature and authority. Somebody wrote the law in my heart. 
This judgment, therefore, doesn't begin with my isolated decision. My decision is based on this first, this other law that is written there. Thomas, of course, argues this regarding natural law, which again we encountered earlier from Professor Brown, which is also revealed in the Ten Commandments and has been promulgated to all of creation. And therefore, all men are bound to observe it, and none can claim ignorance. So Thomas defines this synderesis, this spark, as some natural habit. Again, we've talked about nature. It's something of our nature which provides me and every human being with a knowledge of the first principle of practical reason. Do good, avoid evil. But that's very general. It's very general. But Thomas also connects, right after he speaks of that general principle, he also speaks of what another Dominican, Father Dominic Holtz, I give him credit for this, of these common proper principles, which again, uh, Professor um, Brown spoke of. That all being tries to preserve itself, sexual intercourse and care for offspring, which we share with animals, and then those two points which are specific to human beings, knowledge of truth, God, and that social nature, which was response to a question earlier this morning. So we've got these general guidelines that are somehow infallible, written within us, that can never be blotted out or ignored, Thomas says. Now, Thomas adds another little argument regarding why we need this law, this spark. He says the nature of our human soul is such that in both the speculative, you know, my knowledge of, okay, I know these cre the faith, the speculative level, but also as to the practical, at both levels, where I'm just speaking about knowledge that I know. You know, we used to use this example in the novitiate. We had sisters who had studied car mechanics. In our, in our, when I was a novice, we went on, our manager outings were funerals. Luckily, there were a lot of people that died that year. Um, <laughs> but we would go out, and the Knights of Columbus had given us their old vans, and they would always break down. And we had two sisters. One considered herself an auto mechanic, and the other had, had studied auto mechanics, and they would always fight, and the rest of us would just go for a walk. <laughs> and one got a C in auto mechanics. <laughs> So the question is speculative knowledge. Do I know, do I, can I get an A? That's the speculative knowledge. The practical is can I use it? But on both levels, whether it's speculative or practical, Thomas is saying we need these first principles, like the principle of non-contradiction. Right? The whole is equal to the sum of its parts. But in the practical realm, we also need these first principles. Why? Because Thomas says on the practical level, we need something that is stable and certain that is there so that it is always ready for me to use. That's what this endorses is. It's always ready for me to use. Thomas compares this knowledge of that spark of conscience, Sindaris, to a seed. He says it contains in germ all of the knowledge that follows. It belongs to the very nature of the intellectual soul so that no one is deprived of its light. And it is this spark that gives our conscience its imperative character. What John Paul II would say, conscience is not independent. It's not an exclusive capacity to decide, I decide this is good or evil. He said it is profoundly imprinted upon the principle of an obedience. As I say, that law that God wrote in my heart. It's non-negotiable, inextinguishable, infallible, which is why Thomas will refer to the psalmist who cried up. He refers, he, he uses the psalmist's cry of, lift up the light. This light is that light, that spark of conscience. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. As a rational being, conscience is my sole guide. Without it, I'm a reed blowing in the wind. Thus, Newman will say, if you act against your conscience, you lose your soul. Boom. The knowledge upon which conscience bases its judgments is not limited, though, solely to this synderesis, this spark, these first principles. But these first principles are kind of a magnetic force guiding us and guiding all other knowledge towards the good, another point we heard earlier today. Benedict XVI speaks of this knowledge as an inner ontological tendency causing our very being to resonate with some things and to clash with others. 
Now, if there is this inner law moving my conscience to resonate with good and to clash with evil, well, then why do some people resonate with evil and clash with good? Other questions we've run into. Well, although these first principles provide an infallible, inextinguishable light, there's a vast expanse stretching between those first principles and my particular act in this particular moment. Let's go back to Massimo. Even in his sin of fornication, you can identify traces of syndaresis of this spark. He chose an objective evil, which he considered an apparent good. And as such, his error really poses no threat to what I've just been saying about syndaresis being an inextinguishable nature because he chose some good in some way. He was wrong, but it was an apparent good. Well, let's take it a little bit, let's go beyond Massimo. What about the trans, those promoting the transgender surgeries, the homosexual unions, et cetera, what Thomas would call unnatural sins. They're that bad. All sins are unnatural in one way, but Thomas says there's one category that are unnatural in a whole. They go contrary to our very nature as it's created. Don't these prove that syndaresis can fail? That some people don't have that spark? Thomas raised this question actually back in the 1200s. And he concluded, as already noted, that these general principles cannot be erased. They are in every human heart. But he added a distinction. And he went on to conclusions we arrived to down the road. And he says that the level of the application of those principles to my particular act, error can enter in. At this point, even though those first principles cannot be blotted out, error enters in quite simply as soon as I start to think. <laughs> as soon as we start to think and make a lot, try to make a logical conclusion, error can enter in, which is why Thomas will argue, the spark remains, but those secondary precepts can be blotted out. We can conclude that evil is good. And this is why However, another little caveat, despite those grave distortions, though, promoted even by the transgender agenda, even underlying their errors, we can find traces, again, of common proper principles. Sexual intercourse, they want that. They want to get married. They want to have children, which is back to continuation of the species, care for offspring. That's what they're arguing for. Which is why Thomas, as well as going back to Jerome, would say that that spark exist even in the most depraved man. I would always use Batman's Joker, right? Most depraved man still has something of that spark. Even the people we're dialoguing with today with this transgender, they still have that spark, those first principles. But they're logical conclusions, there's error. Newman sums up the situation. He says, our sense of right and wrong is so delicate, so fitful, easily puzzled, obscured, perverted, so subtle in its argumentative methods, so impressible by education, the importance of Christendom College, so biased by pride and passion, so unsteady in its course, that it's, as it struggles for existence, it's the highest of all teachers, but the least luminous. <laughs> we've got this great light, but we've, we've got the problems here. And we see that. For Newman, this vulnerability of conscience dictates the urgent need for the assistance of the magisterium in formation, which leads us to this third notion, formation of conscience. Cinderesis can't be deformed, but there's another source of knowledge acquired for me to make this judgment. Conscience isn't static. Even though we have those principles, those first principles, it's not static. Too many think, oh, well, my conscience judged this, and therefore I have to follow my conscience. Well, your conscience is continually being formed and continually changing, even as you act. It's being formed by the magisterium for Catholics, by priests and confessors, by family and friends, by society and media, by my own passions, habits, and experiences. The fallibility, though, of the majority of these teachers means that they can form and deform my conscience. But we have to be careful. The deformity can't be blamed solely on others because it's my intellect. It's my conscience. 
which gathers this information, interprets it, or possibly just sets it aside and rejects it. Father was talking about that too. We were having a discussion on this last night. To say only that the church obliges me to follow my conscience is stopping short of the truth, because again, referring back to the, con to the catechism, it says, yes, I must follow my conscience, but adds, by my conscience, I assume responsibility for my actions, and because of that responsibility, I have to inform it. I have to be enlightened. This responsibility brings in another point that has already been addressed, a very controversial point, that of freedom. Now this is a vast topic and we've already had some discussion, but I want to just address two points that tie in with my discussion of formation of conscience. First is Thomas Aquinas on libero arbitrio, another Latin term, but I'm going to stick with that phrase, why? Because it's often translated as free choice, but we've already seen free choice people interpret in many different ways. And that's not getting to the core of what Thomas is saying with libero arbitrio. So I use the Latin phrase to avoid those errors. Libero arbitrio, this is the source of our being able to choose, is not merely about my will. It's also about my intellect. It's a faculty of the will and of reason, Thomas says. It's my will guided by reason. That's what free choice is. It's not me just freely choosing whatever I want. Now I'm going to leave that aside a little bit and go to another topic here. As I say, I just wanted to mention that. The free choice includes both of the powers. I also want to mention another point, though, as to freedom. And this is more in the theological, so I'm stepping away from the philosophy of Professor Brown. When we speak of conscience, what's the relationship between human freedom and divine freedom? There's a critical juncture here. These two freedoms have to meet. This is where we find conscience. Conscience is at the juncture of human freedom, divine freedom. But we also find here heated debate. Many theologians who bear a good deal of responsibility for forming consciences in a post-humani vitae, I'm saying post-humani vitae because that's, we can go back there for all the diff many different issues. In a post-humani vitae church, many theologians struggle to find the balance between these two freedoms, human freedom, divine freedom. They have an inability to conceive human freedom as coexisting with any necessity. Again, a point, hopefully you're catching all of this has already been addressed, but I'm just approaching it from a different perspective, hopefully. Even this necessity that is divine, the church proposes a moral law based on natural law and revelation, preaches a necessity which they see, many of these other theologians, see it as constraining my freedom. I'm faced with a conflict between necessity, church's interpretation of divine law, and possibility, my judgment of conscience, and freedom says what? I have to reject. The church has to give way. This is often called theonymous autonomy. Note, God comes in, theonymous, but the interpretation of it, it was phrased by um, Franz Bockel, is basically it's freedom without any restriction from an alien authority. Now, Bockel, because he's trying to do this from a Christian perspective, still says God has a claim. That's why it's theonymous autonomy. I'm free, but God comes in. But he adds a caveat. The whole question is, how do we interpret God's claim on me? Well, another proponent of this, Alphonse Auer, he basically says, this is God's claim on us. Since I am free, what is my claim? Well, God created me free. He created an autonomous moral being, and he made me a law unto myself. As such, the only norms are those developed by me. Any External moral norms, even those of the church, cannot bind. They're trying to defend freedom, but they reject not only divine necessity, God's law, but also divine possibility. I'm going to return to that topic below. Divine possibility. What is this? As I say, I'm going to leave it a little bit. Now, those are some basic principles on conscience. Now I need to shift a little bit because the next logical step 
having those principles of conscience, natural loss and deresses, would be to talk about Thomas's treatment of virtue, um, especially the virtue of prudence. I'm going to leave that aside. We gave you a book. You can read Pink Cares, and you can read Professor Whitmore's book as to prudence. Great virtue. I love it. Recta ratio agibilium, right reason in action. I'm going to presume that. Not to negate the necessity of prudence, but I need to move, I want to move directly into the discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of counsel and wisdom, which assist prudence. So I'm going to presume we've got something of this prudence in the formation. Also, I'm going to presume something of a, the necessity of infused virtues. Now, that topic didn't come up, but we know we've got acquired virtues, what I work on, and infused virtues that come from God, from the Holy Spirit. Now, these infused virtues, theological, faith, hope, and love, but also can be the moral virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, come with sanctifying grace at baptism. They perfect the powers of my soul, my intellect, my will, my appetites, to perform acts at the level of my supernatural end. Now, I'm going to instead argue, I'm going to leave that aside, and I'm going to focus on the point that in the Christian life, we need these virtues. But for all of us sitting here today, as we're trying to dialogue with the problems we're facing, even the infused virtues, according to Aquinas, will in some way limp, not due to any lack in the Holy Spirit, but rather because of the weakness of my human powers. And this is why the gifts are so important for every one of us here. Thomas considers the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be like virtues because there's something of a habit that's perfecting my power. So he will sometimes say, well, the virtues, the infused virtues, gifts, we can talk about them. They're all kind of perfecting me, helping me to perform good acts. He'll also say, well, you could call the infused virtues gifts because they come from the Holy Spirit. They're not of my nature. Similarities there. Then he goes into all the distinctions. What's the distinction between those infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You know, we've all studied this. We all know there are gifts in the Holy Spirit, but how, do we know how they function in our lives? Do we know how we need them? Thomas argues for the necessity of the gifts, and he gives many different arguments. One, as I said, although those infused virtues that we received in baptism perfect us in some way, they come from the Holy Spirit, they're insufficient before the highest science of God. Thomas says these gifts perfect the virtues. We need these gifts in some way. The virtues help me to function, but they're going to fall short. Why? Because it's about me. In some way, I say the Holy Spirit comes in, but he allows himself to be limited by my own capacity in the infused virtues. In the gifts, he takes me beyond my capacity, which is why we need these. The gifts, Thomas says, are unfettered by human reason. They instill in me a docility to divine inspiration, to God, to the Holy Spirit, so that I can promptly obey the Holy Spirit. Thomas says these gifts have a divine motion distinct from human motion. They're in my powers, but the Holy Spirit's working in me, and he's left me behind. He's taken me to realms that I could not achieve, even with the regular gifts, because he's not allowing himself to be limited by my powers. Thomas will say this divine inspiration of the gifts preserves us from foolishness, all foolishness, ignorance, dullness of mind, hardness of heart. In light of this disparity between my human frailty and the heights of perfection to which each one of us is called, there's an imperative nature of that divine impulse. We need it. Another great Dominican, Bartolome Froger, he's a, he wrote back in our early um, 1940s, 1950s, but he's got a great work on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, we have to have these gifts, and today more than ever. Another argument Thomas says, the divine motion of these gifts doesn't negate my freedom, but rather, I freely cooperate with the Holy Spirit but with the gift, in some way, though I freely cooperate, I'm still passive. As I say, the Holy Spirit works in me in, in a way without me. My intellect is raised to a higher way of knowing and understanding and judging. 
Another distinction Thomas says, here he follows Aristotle, that even Aristotle spoke of this divine instinct. Of course, he's from a more a pagan perspective. But he says, by this, this gift, we're moved by a better principle than human reason. We think we're so smart today. Even a lot of theologians, compliment, all right? We're limited. Doesn't matter, I don't care how smart we are. We are limited in some way. And this is why Thomas says, the gifts perfect man such that he can perform acts which surpass acts of virtue, even infused virtue. Finally, Thomas argues that this docility to the divine brings us a higher level of certitude. Now, we speak a lot when I'm teaching, when we're teaching virtue, we speak a lot of prudential certitude. Okay, I've got this prudence. It's not scientific certitude, but I, got some, I have something of a certitude. But even there, it's based on human reason. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit gives me a, a higher level of certitude, an instinct of the Holy Spirit, given to the children of God who are led by the Spirit. This is the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses, Paul says, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. And the Holy Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. How often we have that, do we have that level of prayer today for ourselves and for those people that we know and love? This discussion of distinct divine instinct and docility of the Holy Spirit applies to all the gifts. But as I said, I want to sp speak a little bit specifically as to counsel and wisdom. Now, conscience, we said, is a judgment about particular acts. Virtue of prudence helps me to judge and put it into action. But if my reason is limited, so too is conscience. Conscience needs the gift of counsel. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance to reason about these particular acts. We can be very smart. We can have a lot of experience. But there are times where we are going to run into dilemmas. The gift exceeds the virtue. Why? Because I'm going to be counseled not by me. I'm counseled by God with the gift. Now, this excellence, this, now this seems a little bit, whoa. Okay, that's great, sister, for sisters and for priests, right? Everybody else can kind of leave it aside. Thomas actually addresses this point. He raised this objection in one of his writings. Some said, oh, that's fine, Thomas, but that's a little too excellent. Maybe you're speaking of this gift of counsel as like a gratuitous gift, a charismatic gift that's only for a few people. And Thomas says, nope. He says, the gift is common to all the saints. And here he's speaking of all the people of God. God counsels, and we all need God's counsel for the things necessary for our salvation. Let's go back to Massimo and his struggle with chastity. Now, he had a decision to go to confession. That was pretty good. He made a judgment of conscience at a certain level. Something of prudence directed him towards that, that good. Once there, the priest assisted him, gave him some information. You can't do this, Massimo. And what he previously judged to be moral, he now said, understands that's a sinful act. But his world has been overturned. He's reflecting on this knowledge, which led him to sister. He had just come out of the confessional, literally, and this was not me. I ran into him later. I, that's another whole story of how I ran into Massimo. And it was like, what? It was another sister. But he, that's why he, he's, his world is in turmoil. That's why he sees this sister, and he starts talking just on an elevator. And he starts going into this hole. And sister offers him some advice. And she says, well, you can try to avoid the sin. You could get a separate apartment. You could marry the young woman. Oh, now, Massimo faces a dilemma. Does he continue his life of sin, or does he choose one of the goods to move out or to propose to his girlfriend? Now, his conscience, if he decides to continue in sin, his conscience is still going to be there bothering him. But if he chooses one of the other two to move out or to propose, he could lose his girlfriend, and he doesn't want to do that. Now. He could make a decision here, and he doesn't necessarily need the gift of counsel, but what would the gift of counsel give him? It would give him a higher level of certitude and would help him more easily to navigate those difficulties he faced with whatever decision he made. We can all learn from Massimo. 
We all face dilemmas in our life. They may not be what Massimo's were, but we all face dilemmas, our own or those we know and love. Each day, it can be problems of infertility, gender dysphoria among family and friends, medical dilemmas, terminally ill, elderly, business, business ethic issues, new unknowns of AI. The dilemmas differ, but the necessity of the gifts remain. In fact, here I want to just make a little reference. Even in the ancient dilemmas of the scriptures, we can find some help. A fitting example here for our discussion of conscience and freedom is that of Moses at the Red Sea. Now, Moses and the Israelites arrived at the Red Sea, Pharaoh's at their heels. Now, surely we know they took counsel, of course, and they tried to determine what should they do. We can kind of imagine three possible options. Number one, let's just go through the sea. Well, they're all going to die. That's pretty stupid. Number two, let's turn around and fight Pharaoh. Pretty stupid number two. The only option they really could come to with their human counsel, even with something of an infused Holy Spirit, we could say, as to infused virtue, would be, okay, let's make an arrangement with Pharaoh and go back into slavery. Human counsel was exhausted. But the scriptures tell us God revealed a fourth possibility, the parting of the sea, where the Israelites could safely pass through on dry land. Cardinal Kafara sees Moses' experience as an example of human necessity meeting divine possibility. Left to our own devices, despite advances in human intelligence and AI, creativity, virtue, whatever, I don't care how smart we are, our responses to, to dilemmas are limited. Only fidelity to the necessity of the divine plan destroys the bounds of human possibility and opens the way to new options. The sea parts and we arrive at true freedom. Freedom which includes a properly formed conscience aided by the infused theological and moral virtues, but which extends to participation in the perfection of supernatural operations. But even here at the level of the gifts, conscience requires universal laws. Again, Cardinal Kafara develops this point. He says it's foolish for those people who defend conscience by rejecting a universal law. They defend free choice, but they actually destroy it. Even with Moses, prior to making that counsel, there was a law. And we see this law in our own choices. It's I, we even say, I must do this. Even though I'm influenced by passion, I look at all of these different options. There's an insufficient knowledge. I say, I must do this. This is good for me. I'm looking to a law. What's telling me I must do this? I'm still looking to a law in some way. I, but moved by the divine impulse, I go beyond that. Moses could judge this new fourth option as being the true good in accord with God's plan, the universal law there. He still, even with that force, he applies it to the law. This is good. Back to do good and avoid evil. That's still guiding him, even on the level of the gifts. Only then could he freely choose this option. This is my good, as we talked about nature. Moses saw this is good for me. But now he had a higher level, a higher instinct to see that. And only then could he bring the Israelites to freedom. Now, we'll finalize here with a few points. Fear moved the Israelites to follow Moses through the Red Sea, but their docility, we know, didn't last. Numerous times throughout the Exodus, we hear of their stubborn rejection of his counsel, stubbornness which still arises in the church today. Even some of us are a little stubborn. I am a redhead. <laughs> Many resist counsel of the church, of the clergy, of family, of fellow Christians. Moses needed more than the gift of counsel to guide the stubborn Israelites to the promised land. He also needed something of the gift of wisdom to know how to communicate that to those for whom he was responsible. The path to the promised land for Moses and for each of us requires more than counsel on the level of first person I'm examining and forming my conscience for my personal life. 
We're in dialogue. This, this conference today was about dialogue. How do we respond to the problems today? It's not just about me. We all have an obligation within the church. We're part of the mystical body. Dialogue with Catholics and non-Catholics requires consideration of a second person aspect, the listener. I can take counsel and discern rightly, but my efforts will fail if I lack the spirit's wisdom to communicate it, but also to realize that the person I'm speaking to, the Holy Spirit is working in them as well. I want to go to St. Dominic, an example of St. Dominic, my founder. Okay. You may know the story. He spent an entire night in a tavern. Well, we all like that part. That sounds good. <laughs> With an Albigensian heretic. And I love the idea. He spent the entire night, and I think this is very important for us today. Even in the 1200s, it wasn't easy. He didn't merely dictate. If they just sat together and he just talked, the guy would have left or fallen asleep. What we know from that is that he was guided by the Spirit. He listened. He learned. He listened to what the Albigensians said. They talked. They were in dialogue. And then he spoke. But also, we can see guided by the Holy Spirit, too, was the Albigensian. He listened. He learned, he spoke, and he was converted. There's a reciprocity in formation of conscience. Of course, unlike the Albigensian, our interlocutors today, those to whom we speak, may reject the truth. But as previously noted, they don't always bear full blame. I can also be the cause of the rejection of truth if I strip my zeal of charity. This is a pastoral error. We all recall Paul VI's words, his well-known adage, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers, and if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. Now, Joseph Ratzinger, before being Pope Benedict, he spoke about this. And he spoke of contemporary pastoral errors, but from a different perspective. He spoke of an unhealthy tension between Orthodoxy, right teaching, we're all very familiar with that. But he also stopped, spoke about orthopraxis, the pastoral care, especially in the moral life. And he spoke of this tension. Now this tension is often accompanied by a separation of faith and morals. My faith is here, but this is how I'm acting, okay? I have to, well, I'm trying to counsel this couple, come on, it's too difficult, how can you tell them that they can't? practice IVF, okay, we know the teaching is here, but in the practical situation, we often leave the faith behind. This is the tension between faith and morals Benedict was speaking of. Now, many lay the blame for these contemporary errors at the feet of preachers and teachers who sacrifice orthodoxy for orthopraxis, right? They're looking at the practical. So they leave the faith behind. That's the teaching of the church, but it doesn't apply in this situation. But Ratzinger didn't allow, he didn't, doesn't allow the argument to stay there. He cautions about those who favor orthodoxy to the detriment of orthopraxis. Any separation of faith and morals is dangerous. He says they speak truth, but in a way that they make orthodoxy seem questionable. And this is what we face today. How do we preach that truth? His teaching highlights the need for true dialogue, where teachers and listeners are docile to the divine instinct received in both the gift of counsel and the gift of wisdom, which corresponds to charity, caritas and veritate. What is this wisdom? Aristotle and Aquinas both agree, the greatest wisdom requires the greatest virtue, which corresponds to the highest operation. Our highest operation is the intellect contemplation of the highest truth. That's wisdom. Through wisdom, I know something of the highest cause. We know the wise man who knows so much. We have many wise people here in this room. By this he can judge, set in order that which he judges according to human reason. Now this is great, this human wisdom. Stretching towards the highest cause, but it's still gonna fall short before that highest cause, which is the Trinitarian God, 
who is sapiens simpliciter, simple wisdom, truth, who judges and orders all things according to his rule. Only the gift brings each of us to knowledge of God as the highest cause and to the possibility of judging rightly about divine things because I judge according to God. Wisdom, Thomas teaches, implies a certain rectitude of judgment in accord with divine reason. Perfect use of reason. This is the gift of wisdom. With a co-naturality that's not merely human, but is taken where I judge not according to how smart I am, but the Holy Spirit works through me. With we call a co-naturality, it becomes natural to me to judge divine things, and Thomas says this is a result of charity. I can only judge that way when I'm united to God, which is why we have charity and wisdom necessary for this formation. Only insofar as I am united with God in charity can I acquire the ability to measure according to right judgment, because only then can I truly judge according to God's law, not to my interpretation of it. God's, Thomas concludes and says, Wisdom is caused by charity. It's union with God which reveals the mysteries of divine wisdom. So to conclude, the gifts soar to the heavens, but they don't dwell solely in the mystical realms. The Spirit's gifts of counsel and wisdom are sure guides for us today in our daily dialogue with the contemporary world. Benedict XVI in his two documents on charity, Deus, Car Deus Caritas, Veritas and Caritate, speaks of truth. And he says it's not something we produce. It's found, or better, it's received. He says truth is like love. Neither is planned nor willed, but somehow imposed upon human being without negating freedom. Our dialogue today demands this first person, second formation, person formation of conscience. Successful dialogue of truth, particularly these highest truth, demands these gifts of counsel and wisdom, that divine instinct that makes both of us docile. I may think I'm docile to the Holy Spirit, but I have to remember that I pray that that person is also docile and that the Holy Spirit works through them. Dialogue is not merely about challenging the consciences of others. It's about challenging my own conscience. If I wish to dialogue with others, I must enter into dialogue with revelation and allow it to challenge my conscience, not only as to what Christ taught, but how he taught it to his friends and to his enemies. His goal was that all should become his friends. And to that end, he sent the Holy Spirit, who makes us friends of God, and assists us as we try to bring this friendship to others. Only with this help, Thomas Aquinas reminds us, will we be able to speak of the mysteries of the kingdom without anxiety, despite adversity and attacks. Only the Spirit can bring us and work through us to bring others to the freedom of the sons of God. Thank you.